0: Welcome to Inside the Hive. We are back. Another week. We live to tell the tale. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Hagen. Hello, Joe.
1: Hello, Emily Jane Fox. It's a pleasure to be back here with all the people.
0: Always. Guys, we, we seem it seems like you loved last week's episode. We're so excited. I loved it too. Joe, I think you loved mm. it. So fun. Loved it. We'll be we'll be sure to keep having conversations like that one. Um It was so important. I think it will continue to be so important, and we will keep bringing you uh, that kind of guest, that kind of conversation, but thanks for That was Mara
1: Healy, the uh, Attorney General from Massachusetts, talking about the prospect of uh, litigating, indicting uh, soon-to-be former President Donald Trump, uh, who seems to be—he'll be the last to know that he's the former president, it appears— Ah, uh, but yeah, that was an amazing interview you did last week. Uh, the people seem to love it, and we'll be bringing you more of that, of course, in the coming months. Now, uh, you know, there was an article sometime this week talking about, uh, you know, the the sort of different views of uh, what is going on in the country between Trump and Joe Biden, and Biden is saying, "Hey, it's going to be a dark winter." He's saying, "You need to, we need to get real here," and Trump's still living in a fantasy land, and. Uh, It sort of uh, brought to mind, uh, speaking of um, guests, we have Rick Perlstein, the author of a fantastic book called Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. Uh, We have him on the show today, and he's going to be talking about, uh, the book's really about the birth of the right wing that we have all come to know over the last many years, how it came about in the after the ashes of Watergate and the collapse, really, of Jimmy Carter's presidency and how it was built, the blueprint for it. And one of the things that you find, and we all know, is that, um, you know, there was a view, a uh, Reagan, came smiling Ronald Reagan of California, you know, puts a happy, smiling face on this sort of, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, Scrooge-like economic policy that he's going to deliver to the world and that will define, really, the conservative Republican uh, politics for the next 50 years. And one of the things that Jimmy Carter suffered from was this idea that he represented malaise, that he wasn't optimistic, he was asking the country to sacrifice you know, these were words he used. He gave the Malay speech that, peop- that became sort of famous um, or infamous moment in his presidency. And it brought to mind all of the uh, problems that Joe Biden could have when he becomes president. You know, the cautionary tales of somebody who comes in promising to kind of unite the country, reset things after a period of chaos— in the in the 70s case, we're talking about Watergate and Nixon and all the, that brought on. And now we have this. And, uh, you know, what can we learn from history and present to this president elect Joe Biden as, hey, uh, let's uh, think about um, restoring uh, certain aspects of our uh, political conversation and our culture um but uh, the country also kind of fundamentally uh, has a bad reaction <laughs> to people who's who's who are too uh, you know dark, mm. right? And uh, it made me. I remember when I heard when I s- heard the expression, you know, it's going to be a dark winter, which is a real thing, and we need to pay attention to this pandemic. It also gave me a little quiver, having read all of this stuff about Jimmy Carter and the things that, the kind of self-inflicted wounds that he gave to himself politically and how the press, you know, coming out of Watergate, the press, you know, the ones that, that sort of birthed the, the kind of journalism that you and I have practiced our whole careers. That same press, uh, they were very hard on Jimmy Carter. And uh, any kind of minor gaffe that happened they all glommed onto because they were just looking for a story and everybody if there was any smoke right they thought there must be a fire because we had just come out of Watergate right and now we're just coming out of Trump where it's just been like an immense amount of news and the press will want more of that well anyway all of that is a long-winded way of saying that Rick Perlstein is going to uh, in this interview that I'm about to do um, talk about some of this and uh, it's a fantastic interview. It's a deep dive uh, of the kind that I think we'll find uh, immensely pleasurable, and especially for people that, um, you know, kind of love both history, but also sort of the retro pleasures of, uh, of a guy who can bring its novelistic drama out of it. If you were a fan of Mad Men or Mrs. America, this is the book for you because it takes you to the newspaper level the day-by-day, blow-by-blow drama of what happened in the late 70s and how it all emerged to be the history we know.
0: It really feels like the perfect way to historically situate the moment that we're in and perhaps give us a little bit of an understanding of what President Joe Biden is in for in terms of the press. the, The situation you just laid out just feels so exact mm-hmm. to what we could be about to face. And I think, look, the, the language is, it is dark. It is gloomy. Uh, it certainly matches the times we're in. And that's certainly, uh, no one really wants a reminder of just how bleak it is, right? Everyone knows how bleak it is. What they're looking for is, is morning in America, right? But mm-hmm. I think, well, I understand the idea that people don't want to hang around in that gloom. There's something about it that I like, and I'll tell you why. I think that we have lived in this era for the last five years that is so devoid of any tie to reality that if this is just a sign that, like, what our highest leader is going to be like in terms of trying to ground us back in reality, even if it's not what you want to hear. We are in for a dark winter. We have
2: mm-hmm.
0: we have people dying at such alarming rates every single way. To make that sound optimistic would be untrue.
1: And I and I'm not suggesting he do that at all. And I, you know, yeah, we broke a record this week: three thousand people in one day. You know, it's more than than
0: on nine eleven.
1: Yeah. Uh, so this is. Um, All of which is to say there's no perfect analogy to be made here. And also—and by the way, there's the darkness of this reality we're facing, and there's the darkness of what the right wing is curdling into in the face of it, in the face of this loss. You had Rush Limbaugh saying this week, you know, we're trending towards secession, right? I see more and more people asking, what in the world do we have in common with the people who live in, say, New York, (laughs) <laughs> and I just thought, what are you talking about? I mean, that's madness. This is a, a world of madness is sort of evolving on the right. You don't know if it's evolving or if it's this is the sort of like the last throes of a of a kind of insane lunatic fringe, you know, party. We hope it is, right? But once again, all of this sort of born out of trends that have been with us all along, right? And it makes you realize that the degree to which Trump sort of unwrapped, he, he sort of gave us the blunt end of all these things that had been kind of bubbling under the surface of our culture for years. Sure. And now we have to figure out how to mediate them again.
0: That's exactly right. I, that's why I'm so excited to hear this interview, because I think it really just puts all of what we are about to go through to witness into a little bit of context. And I know you guys get into it, so... Let's just get right to it.
1: Mr. Rick Pearlstein, author of Reagan Land, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980.
2: Hi, how are you? Joe, I'm doing well.
1: I'm really psyched to have you on the program. I'm a big fan of your work. Um, Nixon Land, I have a copy of your book, Nixon Land, with full of yellow post it notes. Uh, which I, you know, I used that book. It was a reference. It was t- for my book, Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of John uh-huh. Winter in Rolling Stone Magazine. Uh-huh. It was in the, in the yeah, bibliography. Yeah. And so we, you and I sort of traced some similar, you know, historical pathways, the 60s and 70s in particular. And I really admire uh, what you've done, uh, especially with this latest one, Reagan Lands, which is kind of like this uh, really propulsive novelistic, uh, you know, front row seat to the kind of blow-by-blow blow of how, you know, the rise of Reagan in the late 70s, it's kind of a blueprint for really the right wing as we would come to know it, right, in the last 50 years. Um, and, and one of the things I was really fascinated with reading about you was that, uh, you know, in terms of how you got interested in all this before we dive into the book, uh, you, there was a bookstore in Milwaukee where you're from. Right. That had kind of like, I don't know, stacks of old magazines and you discovered right. them. Yeah. Tell me about that.
2: The Renaissance bookstore. It was kind of like one step ahead of the building inspector. Uh, and <laughs> I think finally it was condemned, but only like, you know, five or six years ago. And it was it was just a stupendous place. I mean, it yeah. was like uh, it was like something out of like, you know, you go to a, in, in a movie where you go and like go. And then the next scene is, you know, like gremlins are infesting the earth, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Strange and exotic and weird and musty and, you know, really fit the kind of my Baroque sense, I think, of uh, the history of this, you know, strange nation of ours. Uh, but I it was very memorable. You know, I would I would you know, I must have been like, you know, 16 or 17, 18, you know, before I packed off to college. And I specifically remember articles that I would look up, you know, for my research for Reaganland. Um, you know. <laughs> Turns out that you know my gift in life was remembering things I read in magazines. You know, 30 years earlier.
1: Right, and there's something kind of magical about about coming across like a stack of old magazines in an antique store or something, and you start flipping through, and it's like, wow, it's always that's remarkable. My,
2: that's yeah, that's my jam. Really, that's
1: that's your jam for sure. And and the and the one of the wonderful things about your books, which take you through the political history, in a way that will edify you as great books of history will, but also incredibly entertaining because of the little details from newspapers and magazines. Yeah,
2: that's a philosophy I have, that basically people live their lives with no hard and fast distinctions between what's politics and what's culture you know, what's the economy, you know, what's family? It's all kind of mixed together. And that's what I try and convey, that kind of thickness of the passage of time. Yeah. So I got to talk about movies. You know, I got to talk about newspapers. I got to talk about, you know, your mom going off to work because your dad, you know, is you know his income is stagnating. And next thing you know, you know, feminism is, feminism is happening. And the next thing you know, after that, Phyllis Schlafly is, you know, coming hard. You know, yeah. Yeah. it's all connected. Yeah.
1: As a child of the 70s, This was a little, yeah, right. It's almost like uh, reading your book is a little bit like um, finding out what the adults were doing. (laughs) Yeah. Right.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's really funny. There was like, when I wrote my last one's called invisible bridge and it covers 1973 to 1976. And I mentioned in there, uh, I think I mentioned it, that in a kindergarten class was having an impassioned debate about the big issue of the day, which was whether, um, and I made people think it was, you know, Gerald Ford uh, pardoning Richard Nixon, but it was something that happened the same day, which was, evil knievel trying to jump the snake river canyon and there was a huge debate in my kindergarten class among all the dudes about whether he pulled his parachute on purpose because he chickened out yes you get into the realm where i can kind of remember this stuff
1: yeah it's almost it's certain that i was in a similar debate somewhere else in america at the time
2: well and because of that where'd you come down
1: uh on whether he had a parachute (laughs)
2: Yeah. Well, he had a parachute, but whether he did it on purpose.
1: Yeah, or I, I don't remember this specifically, but I did have the um, evil Knievel um, toy, yeah. which you wound yeah, up. Yeah, I had that and, one too. You yeah. wound
2: it up. Yeah, and 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 of course, the the point is that people had this unbelievable, insatiable ap- appetite in the early '70s. You know, for basically TV shows that were like snuff films, in <laughs> which like, yes. you, you basically watched to see if evil can evil was gonna die or not. It was going totally. like Fate of the Republic.
1: Totally. And you know, we get the expression jumping the shark from the Happy Days episode in which That's basically right. Fonzie is attempting to do an Evil Knievel like stunt. Right. right. And I
2: grew up in Milwaukee, so you know, yes. Evil Knievel. We had Fonzie Day in the same kindergarten class
1: <laughs> right and we just uh lost david lander aka squiggy recently which is a you know cultural touchstone for many of us um so we're aging ourselves rapidly here on this podcast yeah 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 uh, but to, you know just to we give people a sense you know people often say newspapers the, the news is like the first draft of history and one of the things I love about your books is that you take us back to that first draft to show, you know, how many
2: kind (laughs) of crappy are as historians.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that, that, (laughs) and also that we have all these received wisdoms about uh, what happened. But when you go back and look at the details, it's much richer than you have been led to believe in many ways. And, and then there's just the fun nuggets of information. Two of my favorites of which are that Jimmy Carter sat in with Dizzy Gillespie and sang salt peanuts. Right. And then uh, bragged
2: about it in his uh, diary about how uh, Dizzy Gillespie <laughs> praised, the New York Times praised his singing voice. <laughs> which
1: is amazing. And then the other one was that Muhammad Ali offered to trade himself for the American hostages uh, in the, during the Iran. <laughs> yeah, contra- I
2: just reread Iran. that part, actually. Yeah. Uh, that was yeah you know, during, during a full on blood soaked riot uh, in which, you know, like uh, Iranian students were beaten within an inch of their lives by a multicultural group of. Americans on Rodeo yes. Drive. In that, Hills. Insane.
1: That whole scene was just insane. I mean, and really crazily, so much of what you write about, like things like that, uh, they just sort of presage. You just realize that what we're yeah. seeing today with Donald That's Trump right. has all just been with us the entire time, and a lot of the outlines of the conversations we've been having in the last whatever you know, 10, 20, 15 years are the same ones we were having, but they were established. A lot of them were established during the period that you write about here. Um, yeah, that's
2: a really good way of putting it.
1: Um, so I, you know, one of the things I I really hone in on in this book when it opens up, it's, um, you know, basically Jimmy Carter is coming into office. Um,
0: yeah.
1: You know, the Republican Party is in shambles after Watergate. Yeah. And Jimmy Carter has like an 80% approval rating. Yep. Right. He's
2: Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah. I mean, what was the sort of promise or, of Jimmy or Carter?
2: Or a '70s singer songwriter. I I, I kind of stole this from an Associated Press writer who 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 um, pointed out to me recently that Jimmy Carter kind of culturally was presented to the nation in 1976, kind of like a 1970s singer songwriter. Yeah. In wow. a flannel shirt, sure. who promised you know, absolute earnest honesty. You know about his relationships yeah, <laughs> and uh you know just kind of like would would just kind of like cut the throat of kind of the bloated kind of dinosaur rock you know yeah. that had become american politics they put it in a rolling stone argo right yeah right exactly um, but you know just to kind of pay out the metaphor of course you know the ultimate you know kind of honest decent you know uh redemptive singer-songwriter of the 70s john denver comes in for it in the, in the course of the story when it turns out in 1979 during the During the fuel shortage he'd been secretly uh storing hundreds of gallons of petroleum beneath his (laughs) beneath his mountain (laughs) estate right Mm, which makes him kind of a villain of the energy crisis so yes we're seeking innocence right yeah and uh there is no innocence to be had right the (laughs) idea that we can kind of redeem america through you know his promises uh, i will never lie to you and you know he lies a lot less than other presidents, but, you know, yeah. that it really isn't enough any president. You know, if, if Ronald Reagan had managed to beat Gerald Ford in 1976, we wouldn't remember this as the age of Reagan. Right. We might remember, you know, Ronald Reagan as this you know, pathetic failure like Jimmy Carter. You know, I mean, a lot of this was bad timing, but a lot of it also was um, Jimmy Carter really ran on. I wouldn't I've called it a bait and switch operation. I'm not sure that's really fair, but um It was a very vague campaign. Right. It was it was I mean, in in, in Invisible Bridge, my previous book, I compare it to the presidential candidate in Nashville who's never seen and just kind of makes all these kind of vague, you know, kind of pleasant sounding promises over a sound truck while driving through Nashville. And that's a little bit what 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 Jimmy Carter did when he was asked to be specific about his policy positions. He tried something you can't really get away with as well now, which you say, oh, well, I'm in, I'll spell them those out after I'm elected, basically. Yeah. Uh, so no one really knew what he was going to do, but they liked who he was really. Um, and, you know, that he came off as a seasoned person. But it turns out that he had a very specific agenda in mind and that he he, he really craved the idea of calling the nation to sacrifice. Right. and saying, you know, we've kind of lived too well and now we've got to cut our belts and rein it in, which made him a pretty uh, vulnerable foil to Ronald Reagan's message, which, of course, was America's the greatest nation on the earth. How dare you say we have to change anything? Yeah. Uh, And, you know, so Jimmy Carter all along is is basically delivering the old right wing conservative measure about what we need to do about financial problems, inflation, high employment. The government has to tighten its belts. And this is exactly the time that the Republicans very cynically. Uh, and very dubiously are coming up with this idea that if we just cut taxes for everybody, we'll, we'll achieve this biblical miracle of the loaves and fishes. And not only will you know, everyone have more money in their pocket, which used, which used to be the, the Democrats promise, the New Deal promise, that the government is going to help you have more money for yourself. Uh, not only is everyone going to get more money because taxes are going to be lower, the government won't even have to sacrifice anything because the revenues will go up so much because the economy will boom like a skyrocket. Right. Of course, it was a complete fiction. Uh, the best description of it was you know, uttered by Ronald Reagan's rival for the 1980 nomination, George H.W. Bush, who calls it voodoo economics.
1: Right. And this <laughs> yeah, is the trickle uh, down. The trickle down this, concept the trickle is down born. Concept. Right. Yes. This is Inside the Hive.
0: Hi, it's Radhika Jones, editor in chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear.
1: Interestingly, you know, while you're sort of tracking uh, the Jimmy Carter presidency, which is like kind of rife with both self-inflicted and sort of fatalistic events that conspire to, you know, uh, ruin his approval rating. Uh, You have, appropriately, almost like Jaws, you have (laughs) this fin coming at him. In yes. the form of Reagan, who's sort of, right. you know, behind the scenes or under the water most of the time.
2: Well, it's Jaws 2 because, you know, Jaws came out in 75. And that was another thing. That was a little, little detail that I have. Like, Hollywood <laughs> was so desperate for steady blockbuster profits. All they did was sequels now. So we'll call it Jaws 2. Yeah, Jaws 2.
1: Okay, that's good. I like that, Jaws 2. <laughs> Just
2: when you thought it was safe to get back in the water. You remember exactly.
1: that Exactly. Right? But he's you You sort of uh, say that what, what he ends up kind of um, putting together— is a political strategy of "quote unquote" organized discontent. That's right, and I thought that was really interesting because what you have is we mentioned Phyllis Schlafly, who's uh, you know going against the e- the ERA and the f- and feminism, and then you've got Anita Bryant, this other kind of forgotten figure who was like the anti gay rights. Oh, uh, I per-
2: hope he didn't. know. I hope no one forgets Anita Bryant, man. <laughs> yeah, Google well, that. Kids, <laughs> we're just trying
1: to forget her music, but um, yeah. but you know, there's all these kind of, uh, and then you've got the kind of backlash against, uh, you know, the business, the corporate interests. Yes. And so all of these little kind of cross currents on, that are happening and, and Reagan is kind of beginning to stitch them together, as
2: it were, right? That's right. He's a coalition builder, like all great politicians.
1: Yeah. And and a lot of it is like uh, coming in, you know, you, the, is it kind of too simplistic to say that a lot of this is kind of the the slow reaction to uh, the 60s cultural upheaval, right? I, I think one...
2: that's absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, what happens is, you know, uh, you know, when I talk about the Renaissance bookstore, right? Um, yeah. The 60s, basically you had a revolution happening like every week, you know? It's like yeah. n- the difference between 1964 and 1969 is just like night and day. You know, it's like, I mean, maybe we can kind of feel this now with Trump but in a different kind of way. But like the difference between like 2000 and 15 and 2010. I mean, they were the yeah. same,
1: you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like,
2: you know, like, you know, 1968, 1969, you know, it just was such a, such a melodramatic time. And kind of, you know, one of the melodramas was this extraordinary outpouring of insurgent energy. And what happens in the 1970s is it begins kind of working its way through the institutions of society. And, you know, it's, it's feminists are, you know, radical lunatics, you know, when they kind of, mm-hmm. You know, in the perception of the world when they kind of burst onto the scene in the late 1960s. But I quote, you know, when women are the the, the men of the year are American women, you know, in Time magazine's Man right. of the Year in 1976, and they're basically like, well, everyone's a feminist now. Everyone agrees, you know, the the era is about to pass, you know, and. Um, one of the points I make in all my books is that it's when kind of liberal ideas are on the cusp of becoming completely hegemonic and in the mainstream, when liberals get most confident that they're inevitable, that the most dangerous backlash tends to ensue, you know, yeah. because, you know, change is hard and people who are of conservative temperament, you know, freak out when change comes. Mm-hmm. And again and again in the book, I have that it's almost like a trope of mine. You know, I quote, you know, um, I, I I quote, um uh, Randy Schultz, you know the, the kind of biographer of Harvey Milk, saying 1977 was going to be the year of the gay, you know, after mm-hmm. pointing out, you know, all these states that were passing gay rights laws, all these municipalities, and then, you know, lo and behold, yeah, right. The shark kind of crashes to the surface of the water, yeah, and it's actually to to kind of extend that metaphor, Phyllis Schlafly says in her 1964, you know, million zillion selling book for Barry Goldwater, a choice not an echo, that politics is seven-eighths percent seven-eighths seven below the surface of the water, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I literally do use the metaphor of icebergs kind of crashing to the surface that had previously been invisible because lo and behold, it turns out that these housewives have been quietly, sedulously, brilliantly organizing against the Equal Rights Amendment all along that not only did they uh, not consider feminism inevitable, they considered it a threat to their very being. You know, literally, it was going to keep Jesus from coming back to earth. And I quote these books that sell millions of copies that suddenly, yeah. you know, time magazine isn't noticing in which literally, I mean, like 5 million copies are being sold of books that say the key to happiness for women is to submit themselves to their husband like they submit themselves to God. Yeah. And, you know, that's out there. And, you know, how are you going to turn that into a vehicle for electoral politics? Well, that's the story of the book.
1: Right, and and just to uh, your book has these beautiful color, um, oh yeah, images inside of some of these books. The Spirit Controlled Woman by Beverly yep. LaHaye, right? Uh, Whose that, husband
2: wrote Left Behind, right? That's
1: right, yeah, and uh, and you know, they wrote
2: are... uh, they wrote a sex manual. So one of the things that's happening with these these <laughs> these, these groups is that they're kind of um, this is you know kind of what happens to insurgencies; they're kind of domesticated. So um, the Christian right is kind of adopting all of the things that. And kind of under their own kind of uh, agenda, right? So, 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 Beverly LaHaye and Tim LaHaye write a sex manual for Christians that argues that it is the duty of every Christian husband to give their wife orgasms, and that wow. God. My wife just walked in and giggled. Um, <laughs> not just Christian women, uh, yeah. Christian men, and uh, that um, you know the clitoris was put there for a purpose, and they literally explain how a man is to Stimulate his wife's clitoris manually by quoting something in the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> yeah,
1: I remember this in the book and kind of my eyes popping out. I mean, and it's in keeping with the general gestalt of the so 70s, your eyes right? right? It's
2: supposed to be the thing that pops. So.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's like, but the, it was still very 70s. It was just very on the, on the um, right wing side. Right.
2: But just enough that kind of like, you know, used to be that fundamentalists were kind of like in this bubble and couldn't enjoy yeah. the things that modern life have to offer. So right. you get the good stuff, but you're able to kind of protest against the stuff that you consider, you know, basically satanic.
1: Right. So this is one of the many cultural currents that are happening and that different kind of newsletter writers and mail yep. mail kind of, um, organizers,
2: service beneath the surface of what the mainstream media is noticing. Yeah.
1: And people are really doing some real organizing and getting big databases together, basically of like, basically, they're, yeah. they're out there. These people are out there. They're, they're working class people. They're religious people, people in the South, mm-hmm. people that, you know, Jimmy Carter might have been able to connect with at first because he was right. seen as a Baptist from the South and had some right. things they could identify with. But, but essentially he kind of for gay rights. Right. And and other yeah. things. Right. So yeah. and I don't know and and essentially feminism too, right?
2: Yes. He was very he was you know, he sold out lots of liberal constituencies and activist groups over and over again and all kinds of stuff. He sold out labor, you know, he 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 right. sold out the abortion movement, but he never sold out the ERA. He was four square for that.
1: Right. And he kind of gives this um uh, this is sort of tangentially related, but he gives this famous interview to Playboy magazine in which he uh, admits That's that right. he has—that's uh, what
2: first kind of raises the alarm of the Christians, yeah.
1: Right, that he has lust in his heart. He has right. lusted he, in his heart, even
2: though he's—he's he's, he's really explaining Christian theology in a very clear way right. <laughs> about why he's not a sinner for actually having these thoughts because he asks for forgiveness. But anyway, yeah. it's enough. It yeah, shows yeah. that you know the people who are claiming to be the you know sort of the followers of the Prince of Peace aren't quite what they say they are, which, right.
1: you know, <laughs> so that puts Jimmy Carter in kind of like a, he he you have a great little line in here. I'm going to paraphrase it, but basically that he had promised so much, or there had been so much ways in which he was trying to promise a lot when he ran right that all, when things the, to all people yeah when the bill came due for you know that then bill came due for his ideological profligacy as you put that's it. that's the is... one yeah
2: that's right <laughs> it's there's a great line really, yeah, yeah there's this great scene where like basically it's literally in dick cheney's office <laughs> yeah where they're kind of planning the 1976 campaign for gerald ford and their pollster is giving a presentation and he's using he's he's basically using these clear plastic sheets in which he's plotted the support of jimmy carter by all these constituencies he's placing one over the other and they're all kind of like clustered around jimmy carter and like they're like oh my god how do we beat this guy everyone loves him yeah even if their politics are completely con- uh, con- contrasted to one another so that really kind of explains you know why we remember kind of jimmy carter as such a failure because he couldn't possibly please all these constituencies. right
1: and he had of course on the left uh that left an opening for and this is this is one of the most amazing fascinating uh hist- history that i knew about but hadn't explored as deeply as i did when i read your book about ted kennedy's rise on the left Totally, you know, the he he kind of creates yeah. an opening for ted kennedy of course who has so many issues and
2: kind of <laughs> yeah. becomes a deer <laughs> yeah, in the but headlights he does, you know and, and and he has all those issues i mean we're talking about you know chappaquiddick and, mm-hmm. and his he, his wife is they're basically on the verge of of divorce Right. And yet, at the same time, Ted Kennedy, even after literally he kind of pulls <laughs> I hate to say this, but he kind of pulls a, a, a Donald Trump. I mean, he refuses to mm-hmm. take no for an answer after he loses the nomination at the convention. By the way, he goes all the way to the convention. Wow. He is given time to give a speech during a platform debate and gives what I call the most effective anti Jimmy Carter speech. For the entire campaign given by anyone, Republican or Democrat. You know, after running, spending all spring and summer, running commercials uh, in which, you know, Carol O'Connor, who plays, again, getting back to popular culture, who plays Mm -hmm. Archie Bunker, this blue collar guy, says that if Jimmy Carter is elected, there'll be a worse worse depression than than under Herbert Hoover. I mean, that is not a united Democratic Party right there.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, so then, you know, he has a a right wing that's getting organized and Reagan uh, prepared to um, claim the mantle. And on the left, he's got, uh, you know, Ted Kennedy and and kind of a lot of disappointed liberals. Um, and then there's this other factor, which, you know, besides putting aside the cultural uh, reaction, you also have what I I had never really completely understood it until I read your book, the economic mm-hmm. forces that were impacting the 70s. Now, people hear about the, the oil crisis and everything, but really the the central issue was that The post-war economic boom had finally abated after years of like double-digit growth or whatever. You finally had this slowdown and and the quote-unquote malaise that Carter suddenly inherits. And
2: and coming in this context in which basically people believe that America is going to be the dominant economic force like forever. Right.
1: Right. Nothing
2: can stop it.
1: That's right. And so that inevitability suddenly has hit a wall. You've had Nixon has, you know, you've had an impeached president and a huge scandal. Um, and the other thing I would point out, because there are so many, you know, there's a galaxy of different trends here, but one that fascinates me being a guy in the media mm-hmm. is that post Watergate, the media became more aggressive and, and and more shallow in some weird ways. Like they yeah, would just not, yeah. hop onto Carter over any little gaffe. And like we mentioned the Playboy interview, which was a, right. a really rich, in-depth, thoughtful That's right. interview. But everybody found this one dumb thing that he said, and it became a huge scandal. Exactly.
2: You know, everyone wants to be Woodward and Bernstein and there are all kinds of kind of these kind of pseudo scandals that kind of rise to the level of scandals. It really kind of, and that really informs, you know, we, we talk about the stuff in this book that really helps understand helps us understand the archaeology of where we how we got to the way we are now. Yeah. You really see this gathering force of both sides journalism yeah. where, you know, literally, you know, uh, Reagan scandals get like almost no coverage and carter's you know pseudo scandals get hyper coverage partly because you know washington is this insular little village and these guys don't play by the rules they're a bunch of yokels you know that's the snope the snopes clan in washington it's the cast of gone with the wind it's these guys who wear cowboy boots and jean jackets at the white house yeah. and you know they don't go to the cotillions, you know, that that Sally Quinn, you know, sets up and they reap the whirlwind for that.
1: Right. Yeah. They're not sexy in the ways that the Georgetown set would like them to be, you know, like, uh, and tasteful and, and scintillating. And, uh, for a
2: time, for a time, the public loves it. I mean, when I was a kid, we were driving to Disney world from Milwaukee for a vacation and we stopped in Plains, Georgia, Carter's, uh, you know, um, hometown, which, you know, it must have been after like his popularity faded, just thinking about when it was seventy-nine or eighty. And it was a tourist stop. We went to Billy Carter's gas station. You know, we ate peanut soup, you know. Yeah. It was redneck chic. Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah. Well that's the it's back Stevie to the, uh, the plaid shirts and the um yeah, yeah, and you know, it should be noted just uh this crosses over into my Rolling Stone history that, you know, there were fundraisers that Phil Waldman of Capricorn records put together for him with the Allman oh, yeah. brothers. And right. It
2: turns out Capricorn records was like a drug front.
1: <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. And it was all sort of, it's all very seventies, you know, uh, but you had, you know, Bob Dylan was, yeah. uh, an advocate. Allman brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Hunter Thompson initially, Hunter Thompson. <laughs> you know, not exactly people you want on your side, but, um, uh, if you're trying to uh, have a squeaky clean image. Well,
2: but honestly, you know, he that that was the reason why they did the Playboy interview. It's like they thought they had evangelicals in the bag, but yeah. they didn't think they had this kind of hip cultural left in the bag. So that's yeah. why they, you know, did the Bob Dylan stuff. That's why they did, you know, it was kind of calculated.
1: Yeah, yeah was, of course. He was
2: very good at faking sincerity. You know, I mean, right. he had a very good ad man who was kind of creating that image of the flannel, the flannel shirt guy.
1: Right. And, and he was, you know, the boomers. Who were now in their twenties, and, mm-hmm. and moving into the thirties in some cases, were the new—you um, know—they were a new lobby in a way. They were a new, a new voting block that had to be dealt with, right? And this was the sort of uh, interface was rock music. This is inside the hive. Let's talk about you know Reagan before he becomes fully formed and is the president, and right. Uh, he was saying a, he had a lot of kooky ideas. Didn't he, though? I mean, you know, you, would, there's, you pull a lot of quotes from, from uh, you know, things he said in speeches and in newspapers and stuff. And, you know, he, he was kind of fringy in some ways.
2: Yeah. A big part of um, what the job, your job was, if you were a Ronald Reagan staffer, was to kind of hide Ronald Reagan's kookiness from the public. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it was quite successful. Uh, right. And that process, I think, it drives a lot of the drama in the book. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, one of the National Review, Never, Never Trumpers, tweeted, you know, it's really important for the young generation to understand that, you know, like conservatism didn't always used to be kooks. It was, you know, what did he say? It was crowdhammer, It was yeah. blah, 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 crowdhammer and blah, 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 and Ronald Reagan. Right. And someone was like, what do you think of this, Rick? And I, I tweeted at the person who asked the question and also the guy who made the point. Well, what do you how do you handle the, the fact that, like, a lot of the things that Ronald Reagan said were undeniably kooky, yeah. you know, that, like, nuclear waste could be, you know, repurposed for industrial uses. That's you know? what I that, was thinking, yeah. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. Or, you know, we're talking about COVID. You know, he goes on the radio and says, we should repeal the law that requires the FDA to approve the safety and effectiveness of drugs. Right. You know? Uh, yeah, yeah. And there's just a much bigger sense that, like, basically... Conservatism is great and it has its place, but, you know, and it's a great way to kind of, you know, kind of rouse the masses, you know, using all these kind of demagogy and kind of hatred of liberals and hatred of, you know, insurgent movements and the other and also racism. But, you know, we we want to keep our our, our ass pretty tightly on Pandora's box to make sure it doesn't open too widely, you know, and a big part of, you know, what the contrast is between Reaganism and Trumpism is that sort of caution when it comes to the public face and the private face and the dog whistle and what you say, you know, to a New York Times columnist and what you say, you know, in a speech to an audience in Alabama um, are there's there's a wall between those things. and What Trump has done is he's kind of uh, torn down the wall, which he couldn't have done, you know, without the groundwork being laid by Reaganism.
1: Right. He didn't have a Michael Deaver who was sort of like the Reagan whisperer.
2: Right. He fired Michael Michael Deaver in, you know, like, September of 2015, you
1: know. Right. You know, one of the things that I've thought a lot about reading your book—and there are no perfect historical analogies—but, you know, we've been talking about Jimmy Carter coming in with so much promise as a kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, a reset button, a reform, a restoration of some dignity and decency and all these things, and it sounds awfully familiar— to one right. <laughs> watching what's happening now,
2: yeah, well when when Democrats come in, there's always this kind of uh celebration that finally you know America's been returned to sanity, but you know America's kind of crazy well that's <laughs> and the thing insanity yeah. doesn't go away you yeah. know
1: the crazy doesn't go away, but do you i I was thinking about that this week because there was some article kind of contrasting in you know, a trump's. Kind of a reality-free, you know, view that things are going to be great and there's nothing wrong, nothing to see here. And by the way, I'm still president. Yeah, and then versus Biden saying, "No, the winter it's going to be a dark winter." Right. Right? He's more realistic and yet also seems not optimistic. Right.
2: I I think actually Biden's pretty good. I mean, who knows whether how successful he'll be? And you know, he's obviously coming coming into strong cultural and political headwinds, you know, that we're talking about. But I think he's pretty good at kind of uh, having that kind of saving remnant of Reaganite, you know, kind of optimism and America being great, but also a sort of kind of realism that any any real, mature, responsible leader has to have in the face of actual crises. You know, I I hope I hope that he kind of uh, strikes the balance, you know, usefully. But, you know, I would love to see Joe Biden, you know, um, being a little darker sometimes when it comes to, you know, You can never count out the America, but I don't know, you know, maybe people like that stuff. And so as long as he doesn't kind of read his own press releases and buy it like Barack Obama did, you know, kind of presume that, you know, if he's nice enough, he can somehow get the Republicans to like him. Right. um, You know, I think that's not a terrible, um, that's not a terrible way to start his administration.
1: Right. Well, he, you know, he doesn't enter with the same level of overripe expectation that Jimmy Carter had. Right, he's... right.
2: I think we're all chasing, and also he doesn't have that kind of naivete. Right. You know I mean, someone, someone asked me, you know, he 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 just did this thing where he nominated as his uh, defense secretary a guy who's a four star general, which means he has to go to Congress and ask them to kind of basically temporarily moot the law that 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 says that a civilian has to run the Pentagon. And you know, a really smart analyst said, well, is not that kind of like Jimmy Carter? doing all these things to piss off Congress within the first couple of weeks or months of his administration. And I said, Well, I would guess that Joe Biden, you know, has been in this game so long. He's kind of taking a calculated risk. As opposed to jimmy carter who didn't even realize he was taking a risk he just right that you know he had his mandate and congress go along with him but he, all, all, all he did was you know sabotage the possibility of congress having any kind of respect for what he was trying to accomplish right
1: and one of the things that has to be noted and this is a kind of an amazing thing i'm reading your book where i'm set somewhere in 1978 maybe um and joe biden's actually in there right he's yes, he was indeed. he had a front row seat with his was, finger
2: <laughs> in the wind yeah <laughs>
1: Totally, totally. And there's a whole scene where maybe, you know, Carter, I think Carter goes to him and he relays a bunch of information to Carter. I can't remember exactly. That's right. Yeah. He
2: tells him that Ted Kennedy is going to run for president is the information. Yeah, that's a big piece of
1: information. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So and every time a modern character comes into your book, it's kind of a fascinating thing because when Reagan, for instance, is going to announce his presidency, having a big uh, to do in Manhattan, you know, you point out that this is the Manhattan of uh yeah, the, you know, Taxi driver. Yeah, of taxi driver. <laughs> yeah. uh, yet there was this sort of um resurgence among the real estate magnates. Uh yes, of, rising. Yeah, of which uh Mr. Donald Trump was one. Mr. And,
2: DJT is yes, that's yes. his cameo. You know. uh, yes. And the New York Times um, you know, which is kind of they've apologized for it, but they're basically marketing Donald J. Trump Is just the tonic that New York City needs. I saw, yeah, uh, I read your book. I was like, I thought he's driving the the reporter around in his limousine, you know, and the reporter's like, oh, he has so many successful building projects going on.
1: Yeah, I was, I, when I read that, I was like, oh, whoever that reporter, I mean, you were, you were very uh, kind not to mention the byline. Oh, well,
2: you know, but but like to, no, seriously, to the New York Times credit, when they did his big, their big takeout on Trump's taxes like a year and a half ago or whatever, yeah. they quoted that article and they're like, we were wrong. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. Oh, good. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, it's pretty amazing. But I mean, it would have been hard to know what was coming around the, you know, and how much corruption had been there uh, with he and his father uh, in that business. Maybe, maybe it was something they could have investigated. But um, so- you know, as we mentioned at the outset, so much of what happens in your book, which is, um, I recommend to people listening to this. I mean, oh yes, yeah, uh, so you know you the holidays are coming. This is a this yeah. is a, a profound. Um, just in the heft and the size of it, somebody will feel like they have received something profound. It's a it's a big book, um, and uh, but it it really does. Um, every time you're reading it. Every any section of it, you are either reminded of, uh, you know, a modern TV show that's riffing off of it like Mrs. America. Right. The, right. the Phyllis Schlafly thing, which I thought about yeah. a lot. And or, or the echoes in the news that just and how fresh it feels uh, yeah. to be reading about um, the Republicans, for instance, uh, always being against having a voting holiday, for instance. <laughs> they, they didn't want people to vote like they didn't yeah. want it to be easy to vote. Right, yes, even I have
2: Ronald Reagan saying literally why don't we try to make it harder to vote
1: <laughs> yes and like because they know that whatever they're they're um you know they don't they don't want the right people to vote and that's exactly what is still happening now they, they don't, don't let
2: want 8 million, the Heritage Foundation says if we make voter registration more you know transparent and easy it'll open up voting to eight million illegal aliens
1: right and well and this this of course is why Trump was has tweeted out all year that you know, if we had, if mail-in voting was, you know, everywhere, would there no Republicans would ever be, you know, elected again? Um, I'm not sure that's true. But um, and then, you know, I wanted, to, I was thinking about just this week, uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh. I think it's on the Drudge Report as we speak here. But um, you know, this idea of seceding, right? That the that the right should s- secede. I don't even, you know, how that would even happen. It's ridiculous. But he says, I see more and more people asking, what in the world do we have in common with people who live in, say, New York, right? And you're, and this, you know, I guess this predates even your history and goes back to the Civil War, but, right. um, you know, this idea of this, the cultural fissures as they appear in your book, they haven't become as kind of um, Grand Canyon-like as they are mm-hmm. now, right? I mean there was still a sense that uh, even though people could be pissed off or passionate about their politics, that uh, it was not, or maybe it yeah. was always this passionate and well, it just no, didn't I mean, have think, a voice. You
2: know, it, it was, it was, it was as passionate, you know, kind of at the, at the kind of ground level, like, you know, in, in Invisible Bridge, I write about what happened when Gail Sheehy, uh went from, for New York Magazine. She went to a right. bar in Queens to talk about Watergate and they're all like, well, Nixon should, you know, like uh, have, you know, Ellsberg assassinated. You know, that's <laughs> what a real president would do, you know. Wow. Um, but, you know, these guys didn't have Fox News. Right. Right. Uh, and so that that largely is a uh, media story. And it's also partially and I don't want to be too tough on them, but it's also partially a story about the Democratic Party, you know, kind of abandoning and sort of left labor wing. You know, which yes. really kind of gave guys like that, you know, some money in the bank. You know Yeah. Every time they talk about, you know, maybe we should cut Social Security or maybe, you know, uh, you know, the real answer to our future is, you know, uh, more investment in the stock market or, you know, coal miners should learn how to code. You know, uh, I, I think, you know, there's lots. Obviously, that's one of the reasons the books are so long is there are a lot of moving pieces to this. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we're in a kind of, you know, 1850s feeling situation. Uh, and, you know, I mean. Ultimately, I'll lay the responsibility for that on, you know, the reactionaries who, you know, really are trying to create a society that's very stratified and authoritarian. And, uh, you know, we've seen where that's gotten us. And, uh, you know, so I write, you know, both as a historian, but also as a partisan liberal Democrat. You know, so I'm, I'm kind of inviting citizens to do something about it.
1: Right. Another book I had another author on earlier this year, Kurt Anderson in his book, mm-hmm. uh, Evil Geniuses, which obviously overlaps in many ways with your book. You had you know these sort of architects of this economic idea, the trickle-down economics. You had Milton Friedman and um, yeah, he's in know, in there yeah. Arthur La- Laffer and, and this idea that uh, if you, you know, one of the positions of these of this political view was that you needed to crush the unions. And yep. that was a key thing that Reagan did, um, and that idea, you yeah, know, the when you talk about Jimmy Carter not kind of uh, strengthening the unions or or, or backing right. them in, in the right, you know, that was a huge kind of mistake. That was that allowed uh, what yep. happened to happen. Um, it took the a lot,
2: there was a lot of um, complacency when it came to that. Yeah. And it turns out the churches were the unions of the right wing. They could use church churches interesting. basically that are kind of like infrastructure that you know they had their own precinct organizations like a kind of a union local. A church is like a union local. You can yeah. kind of like get people kind of working and harness, you know, because there a leader people trust.
1: Right. Well, I've always been, it's always been fascinating It's interesting that you put it that way as as them being unions because my whole life I grew up in the South My parents are conservative, a lot of people I knew were, and whenever you'd bring up, you know, uh, socialized medicine or, um, you know, any kind of government support of anything, they would be like, we don't need that, we can depend on the churches. And it's sort of, you know, basically it's like, if you don't believe in God, you're out to, you know, you're screwed, right?
2: Right, right, right. That's a really good way of putting it. This is Inside the Hive.
1: Back to the point a moment ago about, you know, Carter giving up on the unions, you know, the when Reagan came into office, um, you know, the left really never kind of um, recovers. You know, it always plays to the center, which is a right of center that Reagan basically established. Um, You know, by the time Clinton comes into office, he's playing on on the Republicans.
2: Are so terrified of what happened in '80. I mean, the trauma of, you know, a lot of the people who became the kind of the the the, the who who really kind of sailed it, you know, sailed the headwinds of neo the liberal, neoliberal turn in the Democratic Party were people who suffered a trauma in 1980 from Reaganism. And Clinton lost his re-election fight in 1980. Remember, I talk about the Muriel Boatlift lift and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Joe Biden lost an election. You know, Evan Bay was the son of Birch Bay, who you know was this liberal senator who lost his election. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's lots of interesting things going on in the left in the 1980s, too. I mean, there were literally um, how many people you you might remember. I'm sure it was in Rolling Stone. There was like maybe a million or two million people protesting for a nuclear freeze. And right. Reagan takes it so seriously. It's one of the reasons he negotiates with Gorbachev. Mm. You know, we don't have a war in Central America, which Reagan desperately wanted. So, you know, I want to be fair to the left, too.
1: Sure. Um, it just they were they didn't they were they lost, um, I think, the war of ideas you know they didn't have a distinct alternative uh there was a
2: lot of confusion right so like kind of like there was a lot of um well uh you know we got this far with the new deal kind of paradigm and suddenly the economy is in the shitter yeah and we're losing all these elections so it must be the new deal paradigm but there's almost like a tragedy to that because as this is happening partially because of the rise of republicans and democrats kind of not fighting back you're beginning to get the stagnation and inequality you know that we we see now you know happening so in a sense what we needed was kind of more new deal right uh Mm -hmm. but you know that wasn't fashionable right right Uh, so i mean in a sense what wasn't needed was kind of new ideas but kind of a little more stalwartness you know, and kind of honoring a good idea that worked, which was kind of like decent regulation, you know, decent labor protections. But, you know, a lot of people who were kind of at magazines like, you know, the Washington Monthly and the New Republic, and some of them have, you know, kind of a, kind of apologized for this, too. You know, it's kind of it's the story Kurt Anderson tells. Yeah. We're like, oh, this this stuff isn't cool anymore. Let's go with Jerry Brown, who says we need a balanced budget amendment, you know, right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I hate to sound like a partisan, but maybe what we need was, you know, kind of more leftiness rather than less, you know. Right. I don't know. You know, yeah, I didn't well, re- face, you we know? can't
1: know now. But I mean, Joe Biden is about to, uh, you know, thread uh, some of these needles um, yes
2: and, he, and 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 you know joe biden's superpower is anything he says sounds reasonable
1: yeah. and
2: um <laughs> look he's 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 tacking to the left i mean the the joe biden who makes his cameos four or five times in Regaland is a guy who has his finger in the wind right and you know even corporate america the business roundtable is beginning to say look this idea that the point of a corporation is to deliver shareholder values Hasn't really worked, so they claim that they're, you know, um, and the funny thing is, there's this kind of, there's this funny kind of Back to the Future element, and kind of like the 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 Biden transition. He has this meeting with uh, union leaders and business leaders, and then emerges saying, "We all agree that we need an economy that works for everyone." and and uh, it almost sounds like this kind of like it's very '60s, but not the kind of Jerry Rubin or Tom Hayden '60s, but yeah. the kind of Lyndon Johnson '60s, where there was this kind of modus vivendi mm-hmm. between business and labor about the idea that we needed to care about, you know, the society itself, you know, not just you know profits.
1: I think that's yeah. And you had Charles Koch uh, recently, right? In the in, in the journal, <laughs> um, also. <laughs> Uh, you know, trying a to too
2: little, too late for that guy. Man. Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh gosh, what a mess we made over the last sixty years. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> but you know, when I was talking about that cultural narcissism, narcissism, and I don't want to interpret them in ways they don't mean to be interpreted, but just thinking, you know, extrapolating on that a little bit, you know, the country, both right and left, in some ways, but you know, certainly on the right, almost by principle, um, kind of lost sight of this of the public square right? Yeah, Just so this idea, yeah, this a sense that we're all in this together. And there's definitely that's in the air right now. And we don't know if that will materialize as a thing, because now we have this kooky yeah. fringe. I mean,
2: I, I wrote, a you know, I'm, I'm involved with In These Times Magazine, a liberal magazine, left-wing ship magazine in Chicago. I'm going to be yeah. the board chairman next year. And I wrote a cover article last year, uh, last year, this year, yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> a million years ago, yes. you know, this summer, basically, about how market thinking has caused a lot of the covid crisis we're facing and i compared the kind of ethic of collective sacrifice that we saw during world war ii to you know you can't even get someone to wear a mask you know anymore mm-hmm. you know i mean talk about narcissism yeah right uh the Clearly. idea you know i mean carter was nostalgic for sacrifice you know i mean he he literally would say he would talk about world war ii as if it were an ideal that we should all be acting like a war is going on yeah yeah and you know, and now, but now we're actually in a time in which you know we re- we're facing the possibility of a moral equivalent of war, yeah. this kind of society-wide, uh, uh, um, um, you know, kind of mustering, you know, yeah. against this crisis that could really, you know, teach us about what happens when the government works in the interest of the people, the people, you know, work in the interest of one another, and you know how, as John F. Kennedy used to say, a rising tide can indeed lift all boats. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, we can't change the past. We can understand it, you know, but we can certainly, you know, live with our eyes open. Uh, and the lessons really do seem to be now that, you know, too much individualism, you know, brought America to a very sorry pass and that's up, that's on us. And that's up to us to transcend.
1: Yeah. Well, that is, um, you know, where our eyes all look to 2021 with great hope. It's great to read, you know, this dense history. And when I say dense, that makes it sound like it was not incredibly fun to read. I mean, your book was um, blurbed by Stephen King, who says uh, compares it to reading a a novel. So uh, I certainly feel like that when I'm reading your books. And one of the reasons they were such a model for me is um, how can you make, uh, you know, history have a, a pulse like that. Well, when
2: you're, when you're, when you're writing about, you know, uh, drug binging rock stars, you yes. have, you have a head start. Uh, uh, but, uh, so uh, I got to, uh. I actually got to go back and uh, fix some typos for the paperback which is coming out in August. So I better move to my next task.
1: Oh uh, yeah. Well, listen, it has been a, a great pleasure talking to you and um, we um, didn't even get to talk about jazz records, which uh, uh, is the subject that we'll save for another episode. Okay, but next
2: time. One will that
1: have much lower, uh, uh or ratings but um thank you for coming on the show
2: never buy a jazz record just go on youtube and listen to live performances
1: there you go that you heard it here people uh all right have a great uh week and rest of year and happy holidays and that's our show this week i'd like to thank historian rick perlstein for coming on the show Thanks, of course, to my co-host, Emily Jane Fox, and my producer, Bob Tabador. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find those on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please leave a review. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And we will see you next week.